Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Range of Capital podcast. This is a weekly 15-minute long podcast and the clock starts now. Uh, I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Range of Capital. And with me, as always, is my co-host and the founder of Range of Capital, Chris Demuth. We're going to start things off this week with this week's article of the week. The article is, No Blow-Up is Big Enough to Tarnish Platinum Partners' Returns. It's an article from October 21st, 2015 by Zeke Fo on Bloomberg Business. And uh, Chris, what did you think of the article? I thought it was a very interesting juxtaposition with what we discussed last week. Yep. I think it almost defined the opposite pole uh, between post-industrial and value maximization. Yes. These people seemed proud of almost indulging in the people who are willing to do anything to make you money. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I, I, I thought some of the quotes in there were excellent. Uh, one of them was something along the line of, we'll scour the four corners of the earth for the best risk-adjusted strategy. If things don't work out exactly as forecast, our investors still end up with the principal, a robust interest rate, or potentially an a- asset at an attractive price. And I thought that was so much of what we try to do every week. Uh, but I do think they took it a little bit further than what we try to do. Can you kind of talk about the line between investing with a margin of safety and going kind of beyond the limits of what is morally okay, maybe? Or I don't even know if morally okay is the word. It's a real tension, Andrew. On on one hand, I think the right answer is once you kind of define the correct brackets, which I would certainly uh, use as the law is one standard. Another Mm -hmm. kind of my libertarian ethos would be to say, well, don't, uh, don't hurt people, don't take their stuff. Uh, but within that, uh, within uh, avoiding lying, cheating, and stealing, uh, you go anywhere, you do anything by any means necessary to maximize value. Uh, the flip side of the tension, though, comes in when you say most people, uh, everybody, uh, myself certainly included, tends towards overconfidence. So yeah. when you're trying to define that expected value, it's easy uh, to be overconfident when you're dealing with percentages and dealing with potential outcomes. So if you say you're willing to go right up to the edge and you often find yourself there, that's giving yourself a big possibility that you're going over the edge. I think that's such a great point. And you know, everyone's been talking about Valiant. There was the three and a half hour call this morning with Bill Ackman talking about Valiant. And if you kind of put aside all the fraud stuff and everything, I think it's very interesting to think if you're a good person and you set out to go right up to the line, so you set out and you're like, we're going to do the specialty pharmacy thing that takes advantage of all the loopholes and everything in the system. If you go for all of them, it's so easy to just kind of silently go a little over the line and then a little bit past line. And then all of a sudden there's fraud, <laughs> you've got $45 billion in debt. I like having very loose constraints, but you should hold yourself accountable to the expectation that you're on the line rarely. Yes, yes. Uh, and hopefully you try to do that. Uh, So I do want to talk to you about one more piece of this article and this so I mentioned the parallel to the Al Gore article last week where Al Gore his firm only do things that are morally and ethically right that are helping the world and this and uh, this article this week they'll do anything if they feel like it will make a positive risk adjusted return but there was one piece that I picked up similarities so if you remember last week Al Gore's article said best returns in the industry with the lowest volatility. Well, this article had some of those red flags that kind of put 
that kind of pricked up when I saw that. And Chris, when you hear uh, here are some stats on the on the Platinum Partners Fund, they invest in e-liquid assets. They've had investment gains in 118 of the past 119 months. Their returns have been by far better than the rest of the industry, and they have somehow done that, made that much returns, but despite investing in two Ponzi schemes and their largest position as of 18 months ago, blowing up and going bankrupt. What do you think when you hear that? I'm naturally a skeptic, and I would be especially when I hear that, Uh, but uh, a corollary to my view that a manager should have very loose constraints uh, in what they do. They should have very tight constraints in how they are accounted for and how what they do is described. Yes. Uh, So I would think that that would be very important. Um, I am impressed. I don't want to sound like there's any sour grapes here, but gee, on the volatility, I just question why anything that is that special, that is that good in terms of a value, should correct so consistently. Yes. Uh, Something that you find that's really a bargain, that really is a pricing failure, there's nothing about you buying it that necessarily makes it correct right away. For them, it seems like it has. That is... uh, at least interesting. I, I personally think, and I'm sure you will agree, many times the best returns are made, but they're, you, you buy something at 20, and it's down to 15 a week later because there's so much panic and fear in the market, and then four months later, it's up to 30, 35 mm-hmm. or something. But it seems like these guys have consistently been able to uh, to kind of miss that, that trip from 20 to 15, but always catch the trip from... 15 to 30 or 35. I admire so much about their philosophy and I identify so much with what they say they're trying to accomplish that I'm taking at this point the optimistic view. 100%. Uh, And that view would include an assumption that they are doing something to make their own luck. And and something about their involvement must uh, catalyze their investments upward almost immediately. Absolutely. And... I think you're right. A lot of their investments are private uh, lending type and equity type investments. Uh, the, the only other thing I will say is I think in the article it said there were red flags you could see out to outer space. And I don't know if, if you want the, the guys who will invest in anything at any price, regardless of morals, to also be the guys who are kind of valuing your e-liquid assets and having all of these red flags. But you know, I think it's a very interesting article and thought. There are two separate roles, and they should be done by two separate people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Andrew, uh, I spoke a little bit about an investment idea last week, yeah. uh, and uh, I just want to turn the table over to you a moment to ask you what you're thinking about, what opportunity you found since we last spoke. Okay. So last week, you talked about First Niagara. Uh, I think it was a great way to kick off the podcast. You talked about it, and today they announced a merger. Uh, hopefully we get something similar here. But one stock we've been looking at pretty actively is Media General. The ticker is MEG. And what they are is they're a network affiliate. So basically they own the local ABC, NBC station. Uh, at the beginning of September, they offered to buy Meredith, who is another kind of network affiliate. Uh, they offered to buy them and shareholders hated the deal. The stock was, Media General stock was down 10% on the day. Uh, and it was a very strange merger structure. So Media General was offering to buy Meredith and paying them a premium, 
but Meredith's management team would take over the combined company, which is very strange. Normally the management team that takes over pays the uh, premium for the company that's getting bought. So shareholders hate it, strange structure. Later that month, uh, Nexstar, who's another <laughs> broadcaster, sends media general a letter that says, hey, we offered to buy you for a premium a few months ago and you said, no, we're not interested in M&A right now. Uh, and media general stock was kind of trading for around $11 a share. And Nexstar said, we'll buy you for $14.50. Uh, there was a share component to the deal. Nexstar share has gone up. The, the deal is kind of valued at $15.25 right now, but they offered to buy for a very big premium. And in general, I think both of the mergers make a lot of strategical sense. The whole industry is consolidating. Uh, five years ago, there were 33 major affiliate groups. Today, there's about 15, and I think that's on its way to single digits in the next two or three years. There's some cost savings to combining companies like this, but the really big uh, value in combining two network affiliates is it gives you more negotiating leverage when you're going up against the big cable companies and negotiating how much they pay you per subscriber. So you subscribe to cable, ESPN gets about $6 per person who has a cable subscription. ABC and all of these companies are starting to get $1, $2. Uh, so I think there's strategic value in merging. Uh, I also think that Nexstar makes a lot more sense than Meredith as a merger partner for Media General. And the reason is when you're merging, uh, basically the FTC won't let, simplistically, the FTC won't let someone own more than one major uh, affiliate in a network. So if you own ABC in New Orleans, you can't own Fox in New Orleans as well. So when you're merging, you want as little overlap as possible. And it's also, if you do have overlap, it's better to have overlap in, say, Deerfield, Michigan, than it is to have overlap in Washington, D.C. Overlap in smaller cities is easier to overcome. And Nexstar and Media General, a lot of times we'll kind of put maps together and see how these things fit. Nexstar and Media General is almost a perfect fit. All of their overlap is in very small markets. Meredith and Media General, their overlap, they have some kind of big markets that they overlap in. So there's going to be divestiture problems. There's going to be issues with that. And the last thing I'll say is Nexstar and Media General would be a bigger, a bigger broadcasting company combined. So that would give them more leverage to negotiate. Meredith and Media General would be slightly on the small side. I love looking at these maps. We've been, mm -hmm. we've been looking at a number of combinations uh, this past week. Uh, is this the full uh, headcount of companies involved here? Or when you look at uh, broadcaster consolidation, might somebody else come in in addition uh, for Media General? So for Media General, we, I've looked at it. And I, I really do think Nexstar makes the most sense. If I was looking at Media General ignoring Nexstar, Meredith would be right up at the top of people behind them, but Nexstar is by far the best fit. The good news for Meredith shareholders is I think they're for sale for sure. They're certainly for sale. And they have other companies who fit pretty well with them. So if they're left at the altar here, I think they'll kind of be looking to for their backup marriage within six months or a year. On a media general per share value, where would you be indifferent? What do you think it's worth? That's a great question. So as a standalone company, I think around $15, which is roughly where the next star offer was, is right at the low to fair value range for their stock. All, before August, they were well above 15, but then they sold off on some economy concerns. Go ahead. What, what is it worth to a buyer then? Yeah, so based on today's multiples, I think both Meredith and, I think Meredith could turn around and bid for Media General in competition to Nexstar. I think either of them with the synergies they're talking about could justify 
use, use the term which I love. I, I know they can justify a share price that can drive 16. I am pretty sure they could get up to a share price that could smoke and go to war 18. I really don't think there's any way they're going to justify a share price that could uh, drink alcohol. But it's very, these things are very uh, cyclical, depending on the economy. If, if kind of we got some really good advertising rates, there's going to be a huge political spend cycle coming in 2016. In a couple of years, they could certainly justify that. But I think around 16, 17 is where this happens. Great. Andrew, thank you for that idea. I think that's very promising. I own a bunch of it, uh, which I'm happy to. Uh, so I will be happy to see if you're right. Well, as I said, I hope we get the uh, the first Niagara treatment, and next week we can talk to our listeners about another deal that about we call this week. Yeah. But let me switch topics over to our last segment, the question of the day. This is a Halloween-themed question. Halloween obviously has a lot of candy, but it's also got a lot of scares. So, Chris, what I want to ask you is, what is the scariest risk out there that people are sorry what is the thing that people think is way too scary it's super scary but they actually shouldn't be worried about it and this can be anything in life chris you know i think uh in terms of what i look at i think the two characteristics that i would throw out there are anything that is the most recent and vivid um, I think that if you look at salient data points, yep. the vast majority of things that people have to think about are a long time ago and perhaps extremely relevant, but not exciting. Okay. Uh, and so, so give them something that's just happened and happened with a little dramatic flair, and it is over-accounted for. That, I like that. Mine is somewhat on the same lines. I think people are most scared of things that are outside of their control. So a shark attack, it's so scary because it's so random. You're in the water and a shark gets you. Whereas I think people are not scared enough of things that are in their control. So you're driving and you feel perfectly safe, but actually when you're driving, it's so much more risky than when you're flying in a plane, when a lot of people, my mom included, are terrified of flying, but you're so much more safe than, than when you're driving. I think that it's that feeling of, oh, it's in my control versus it's outside of my control that people are too scared of. If we have one minute left, and we do try to keep it into 15 minutes, yep. do you have an investing example you can think of kind of from the past week that fits into I this do. too much or too little fear compared to reality? So I think people are too scared of small and short-term things. So, oh my gosh, they reported a dollar in earnings and analysts thought they were going to do a dollar in one cent. Or they're too scared of numerical things. I can't buy that stock because its P is 11 and it was 10 yesterday and its peers trade for nine. And I don't think they're worried enough about the fundamentals of the business or doing uh, kind of qualitative due diligence where you really think about the industry and kind of hurt yourself thinking about the fundamentals of the company. Uh, we have 10 seconds. Do you want to give one before we go, Chris? No. No. Okay, great. Well, uh, that's all the time we have this week. Before we sign off, we just want to take a moment to wish our colleague and our uh, makeshift sound editor, Rob Sterner, a happy birthday. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. If you like our ideas, but you don't want to listen to our voices anymore, please be sure to follow Chris and I on Seeking Alpha. Chris writes the M&A Daily column, and I write the weekly Investing with an Edge column. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you guys next week.